Welcome to the Middle East Report. I'm John Riley. Each week, I help you make sense of what's happening in that region of the world through a biblical lens. Security threats, archaeological discoveries, biblical prophecy, just a few of the things that we cover. And the main purpose of the Middle East Report is to encourage you to read, study, and apply the Word of God in your life. And the best way to do that is to connect to the people, places, and geography of what we read in the Bible. And I help you do that each week on the Middle East Report. Thank you for listening. And boy, we have a great show today. I am so happy to connect with a dear friend of mine. And we really haven't talked in a long time. There's so many things going on there. But we're going to go directly to the land of Israel and talk to Rabbi Pesach Waliki, a friend of mine for years and years and years. He's an author. He's a broadcaster. He's a blogger. He's a regular contributor on Jerusalem Post. And uh, he is a person who has built so many bridges between Jewish people and Christians. He's one of the, in my opinion, one of the foremost people that has done that in our nation. He speaks in churches all over the country. Rabbi Pesach Waliki is coming to us from Israel, from the biblical city of Bet Shemesh. It's good to have you here, my friend. Thank you for having me, John. It's an honor and pleasure to be with you. And you're right, we haven't spoken in a while. It'll be great to catch up. It has been a while, and you are there in Israel. And I mentioned biblical city, Bet Shemesh. It is a biblical city, right? Absolutely. It appears in the Bible in a number of places. The most notable story about it is, you might remember the story when the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant and take it down to to their territory, and then they get afflicted with some kind of uh, ailment. It might have been some kind of uh, biblical-era hemorrhoids or something, and then they want to get rid of the ark. They realize that that's why God has afflicted them, and they send the ark on the back of some oxen, and the ark ends up landing in Beit Shemesh. That's one of the mentions, but the more notable significance biblically to our to our city, first of all, there's a huge archaeological dig that is now still being completed, almost open to the public, which uncovers the biblical city of Beit Shemesh. But our town is about a 10-minute drive from the Elah Valley where David killed Goliath. And I think you and I once met up there on the on the on a hilltop next to it and with a few friends and we talked about what happened there. And another notable uh, detail about our location is that Beit Shemesh is located when you drive out of the town, like when I'm heading out uh, to a meeting somewhere and I'm driving out of out of my neighborhood and I hit the highway, we're located between the two towns of Tzor'ah and Eshtaol. And if you read in the book of Judges, the story about Samson, Samson, it says right there that he lived between Tzor'ah and Eshtaol. And in fact, the Sorek River, which features prominently in that story, that's where he met Delilah and got into all kinds of trouble. The Sorek River runs right near there. So it, where Beit Shemesh is located is really at the edge of the territory of the tribe of Dan, biblically, where when the Philistines were were making incursions into the land of Israel, they would come up through that valley and come right up near Beit Shemesh. It's amazing. Anywhere you go in Israel, you know, you the Bible just opens up to you, and it is absolutely incredible, and, and it's just so good. I'm coming back to the land here in March. I'm looking forward to that, even though 
There is a war going on in Israel, and we're going to talk a lot about that, of what's happening there in the land of Israel. Before we get to, you know, some of the current things that are happening there in Israel, can you just tell us how your family is doing? I know you've got family members that are serving the IDF there in Israel. How are you as a family doing there in Israel with these thousands of rockets that are coming into Israel? Thank you for asking, John. We're doing okay. You know, it's amazing how there's the human being has the capacity to adjust to extreme situations. In the opening weeks of the war, when three of my children and my son-in-law, so really four of my kids who serve in combat units, all went off to war, uh, I wasn't sleeping at night. It was a very difficult time for us. It was a huge adjustment. And even though that situation persisted for a long time, somehow it became the new normal. But at the same time, John, I have to tell you, my neighborhood, the synagogue that I attend has already lost five young men. And uh, going to funerals of young men who I watched grow up, children of dear friends of mine, is, uh, is something that is very, it's a very heavy thing. It reminds us of what this is really about and how serious it is. And, you know, so if you ask me about how my family is doing, you know, my kids right now, my combat soldiers, it just happens to be at this point in the war, they've all been taken out. They kind of cycle in and out. I actually have one son who's in now, but he's not in the Gaza Strip. My son-in-law, who's an officer, is a more senior officer and had been in combat for months, really just came out just the other day. Uh, his wife, my daughter, is expecting our first grandchild in a month, so they gave him some leave so he could be home for that. So, uh, you know, we're stressed. There's a, lot, uh, there's a lot of heaviness in the air in our communities. There's a lot of sadness about what happened, a lot of realization that... Uh, that you know, there are people out there in the world who want to destroy the nation of Israel. They they rise up in every generation, and uh, we are now called upon to defeat them. Well, that's exactly what Israel is doing right now, defeating its enemies on so many war fronts there in the land of Israel. And we're going to talk about some of those war fronts and what's going on. And you know, Pesach, I, I speak to people from Israel almost on a daily basis, and I hear. You know, the stories that you just shared about funerals and people uh, losing loved ones in the war. I mean, I just can't even imagine, you know, what it's like, uh, you know, living there on a daily basis. And I did hear, though, that somebody said, well, we're just going on with our life. I mean, we're not going to let this interrupt what we do. I'm sure there's interruptions, but is that is that an accurate way of looking, you know, how things are going there with the general population? I mean, you're just living life even in the midst of the war? We are, and we're doing it deliberately. We need to. Uh, first of all, we, we're a very small country, and the economy needs to keep running. And if everyone who was affected by the war directly would shut down, then the whole economy would shut down. I'll just share with you a little anecdote. You know, in the opening days, in the early weeks of the war, everyone was staying in, in their homes, and there were still rockets being fired all over the country. But even beyond the rockets, people... People didn't feel like going out. They didn't feel like going out and doing things. A lot of people stopped going to work. Uh, There's a lot of everyone's worried. Everyone's got everyone has kids in the army. So really, the whole citizenry is in this together. This is a real citizen army, and again, it's a very small, tight knit country. And it was a, probably about a month and a half into the war, 
And I went, I had to go into Jerusalem. Jerusalem's about a 25-minute drive from my house. I had to go into Jerusalem to take care of something. In the evening, I had a meeting I had to get to. And I went out and I was walking down Ben Yehuda Street, the main, one of the main drags in Jerusalem, the pedestrian mall there with full of tourist shops and restaurants. You've been there many times. And it was mostly empty. And I saw these restaurateurs with their doors open and virtually no one there, a couple kids eating some falafel, but there wasn't a whole lot going on. And I said, you know something? It would be a patriotic act right now with no tourism here. It would be a patriotic act right now for, for me to make sure that I am bringing more business to these to these restaurants and to these, uh, to these shops. So I, I told my wife that and I said, you know, as much as it, we don't really feel like going out on the town with our kids fighting and a war going on, we really have a duty to get out there and support these people. Um, and that's really the attitude in the country. The, look, the news is all still about the war. And ever, and again, going to funerals of of children, of, of friends or loved ones. And in a small country like this, every neighborhood has been affected. But at the same time, it is also a patriotic duty for us to get on with our lives. I love that. That is uh, such a good perspective. And we're talking to Rabbi... Pesach Waliki, and I want to encourage you. He's got an amazing podcast you'll want to get and subscribe to. It's called Shoulder to Shoulder, and you can get that podcast wherever you get your podcast. Uh, he is on all the major podcast platforms out there. So please get that podcast, subscribe to it, download it, follow uh, Rabbi Pesach Waliki. You will be glad that you did. He's got a lot of great guests, and it's not just Rabbi Waliki, he's got a pastor, and they both talk back and forth, so it's pretty awesome. Rabbi Waliki, let's go ahead and turn to what's going on there in Israel with the war. We know Israel is battling on a lot of different war fronts, and we're going to talk about as many of those as we can on this show. I'll have you back again. First of all, let's uh, get an update on what's happening in Gaza, where the Israel troops are and what's happening in that, that part. Well, the Israeli troops are moving towards the south. You know, the the uh, destroying of Hamas began after October seventh, a few weeks afterwards, when the ground incursion began. It really began with the northern cities, with Jabalia and Gaza City, and then moving progressively southward, uh, where the Hamas strongholds really are, where the main strongholds are. Khan Yunis is a city that people have been following the war have heard a lot about lately. That's really the has been traditionally the main headquarters of Hamas. The Israeli army is continuing to operate there. There are no more fully functioning battalions of Hamas fighters in Khan Yunus, but there's still a lot to clean up. Many of your listeners have certainly heard about the tunnel system there. And a lot of people have misconceptions. They don't really understand what these tunnels are. We have to understand what's happening in Gaza. One has to know that these tunnels are not like you know, uh, roughly dug tunnels that you could imagine someone crawling through. These are, if you picture more like a subway tunnel, but also multi-tiered. They have air conditioning, they have internet, they have all kinds of amenities down there. And there's multiple stories with elevator shafts that go from floor to floor. It's like underground buildings. It's like an underground city that they have there. But the civilians in Gaza are not allowed in those tunnels. Those underground bunkers that are protecting the Hamas terrorists and the Hamas leadership, they don't allow the civilians down there. The civilians are forced to stay above ground where they're in harm's way, which is part of their which is part of their strategy. Uh, and 
so Khan Yunus, the Israeli army is still operating in, although we're at a point where kind of victory is assured there. There's just a lot of terrorists there and a lot of terrorist infrastructure that needs to be dismantled. Uh, and when I say dismantled, I mean in house-to-house fighting. There are still casualties in Khan Yunus. Uh, I went to a funeral just last week of a young man down the street. Uh, his father is the is the head of school of my son's high school. I mean, this is it's really, when you say close to home, we're talking a neighbor. And he was killed in Khan Yunus in the fighting there. But at the same time, the Israeli army is beginning to operate in Rafah, which is the border town right near Egypt. And that's the last significant stronghold uh, that they're that they're operating in. And some of your listeners may have heard that not so long ago, just a few days ago, Israel rescued two hostages from a building in Rafah. So that was big news, and that really bodes well. And it also supports the argument that uh, that our government has been making, that Prime Minister Netanyahu has been making, that it is specifically the military pressure that is going to lead to the rescue of the hostages and uh, not backing off as they've been pressured to do by foreign governments. Yeah, there has been so much pressure coming from so many places, including the Biden administration. And hopefully this show or I'll have you back on and we'll talk more about that. But, you know, you're hearing a lot in the news about casualties there in Israel. You're hearing that but from Biden. Well, stop the casualties. Uh, Israel, you need to slow down a little bit or you need to hurry up and get this war over. You're, there's too many casualties. What is the truth about that happening there in Gaza in regards to casualties? You know, it's so great that you asked that question because there is a prevailing narrative out there that there's, you know, obviously Israel's enemies are accusing Israel of genocide, which is just absurd considering the fact that the that the that the the population of the Arabs in those areas has been multiplying rapidly for many many years and uh, there's you know, if Israel wanted to commit a genocide, I guarantee you this war would be over in a couple of days and no Israeli soldiers would die. Uh, Israel is the most humane army in the world and does everything in its power through leaflets and text messages and phone calls to try to get civilians out of harm's way. When we talk about the casualty numbers, let's remember a few things. First of all, Hamas fighters wear civilian clothing, and they do that for two reasons. First of all, because they're terrorists, and that allows them to 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 pretend that they're civilians and then pull out a gun at the last minute, etc. And another reason they do it is so that when they are killed, they count them as civilian casualties and whatever media might be present sees civilians. Now, this is illegal. According to the international rules of war, combatants who wear civilian clothing are committing a war crime because they're endangering other civilians. But Hamas all wear civilian clothing when they're in the fighting. Now, the, the reason this is so important when we talk about the casualty numbers is that if you know if you pay attention to the numbers that Hamas puts out about how many casualties there have been, they never count the number of Hamas fighters who were killed. So the prevailing number out there right now was somewhere in the mid 20,000s. But we have to realize that Israel has already killed about 10,000 Hamas fighters that Hamas never counts. So the, the, if you subtract the Hamas fighters from the official casualty number, and then we take into account that numbers that are coming out of the Hamas health ministry, because remember, Hamas is not just a terrorist organization. They're the government of the Gaza Strip. So they're the ones providing numbers that all of the world media are using. We realize that the actual casualty numbers, meaning if, if we subtract a little bit, as it were, John, because of 
of the inflation of the obvious exaggeration of Hamas. And we also take into account that a huge percentage of them, a significant percentage of them, are actually the Hamas fighters themselves. We realize that this is all really a sham. There has not been a massive amount of civilian casualties. And even whatever civilian casualties they are, let's remember something about international law. According to international law, if there's a war going on and one of the sides of the war deliberately uh, puts civilians in harm's way, and what I mean by that, it's not just holding up a hostage in front of a bullet, but if you use a, a residential location as a military installation, then you are turning a a non-military location into a legitimate military target. And according to international law, according to the Geneva Conventions, if that military target is struck and civilians are killed, the blame for the death of those civilians falls on the one who turned that civilian target into a military one. That's who's responsible. So have there been civilian casualties in Gaza? Certainly. But every single one of them, even according to international law, the culpability falls on Hamas because they're putting them in harm's way. Israel has created uh, corridors for civilians to evacuate. They've given plenty of time. They're providing humanitarian aid and allowing it in. Every civilian casualty in Gaza falls at the responsibility of the Palestine of, of uh, sorry of uh, of Hamas. Now, one thing that uh, if I could share just a small criticism I have for my own government, the Israeli government has and the Israeli army spokesman's office has never put out a counter number of their own estimate of civilian casualties. And I've spoken to them about this and their reasoning is very honest. Their reasoning is we just don't know and they don't want to put out something that they can't verify. The problem with that is with the only number being thrown out there in the media coming from Hamas, that's become the number everyone quotes. But your your listeners should rest assured that if you just think through it for a couple minutes, think about the points that I've made, you realize very quickly that there has actually been a very low number of civilian casualties in this war. Yeah, it's amazing to me when the United States, you know, went to war in the, in the Middle East over you know, 9-11 and, and the other things that we were involved in there in the Middle East. And there were civilian casualties. You know, th this conversation was not being held, you know, from the United States. But it just seems like when it comes to Israel and the Jewish people, it is definitely a double standard. We're talking to Rabbi Pesach Waliki, and I want to encourage you to please connect with his podcast that he has. It's called Shoulder to Shoulder. And you can get that wherever you get your podcast. It's available on all the podcast platforms out there. He's a regular contributor to the Jerusalem Post. He speaks in churches all over the country. We're going to uh, give him an opportunity to tell you how you could bring him into your church as well here in just a moment. So I want to encourage you to connect with him. A lot of ways to do that. I have heard that the majority of people in Gaza support Hamas. They support what Hamas is doing and... You know, their idea to destroy the Jewish people. In fact, that's something that is supported among, you know, a lot of the uh, Palestinians there in Israel. What are what are your thoughts about that? Is that true or what's going on in that area? I'm so happy you asked that question because there's this narrative out there that Hamas is this rogue terrorist organization and doesn't represent the people of Gaza. 
But polling shows, recent polling done after October 7th shows that 75% of the Arabs in Judea and Samaria, known as the West Bank, uh, and in the Gaza Strip, approve of what Hamas did on October 7th. That is, you know, and we have to take that to heart and realize what this what this war is really all about. Hamas took over the Gaza Strip as the government of the Gaza Strip in 2006. And ever since then, they have been educating everyone there to genocide. The In the opening paragraphs of the Charter of Hamas, it calls not for the destruction of the state of Israel, and it doesn't call for the creation of a Palestinian state. It calls for the death of all Jews in the world. And that's in the education system, because remember, Hamas is, is, the, is the government there. We think about Hamas like this ISIS-type jihadist organization. They're, they were the government of the Gaza Strip, running the school system, running the utilities. My son who was in combat, one of my sons who was in combat in the Gaza Strip was telling me that in the house-to-house searches they were doing, as they were going through these cities, in every single apartment building, there would be multiple apartments that, ha- that housed munitions, that there was no building that was free of it. There were weapons stores in apartments all over the place. We now have information that's been verified that there were regular citizens from the towns right near the border fence who once the fence was opened and the atrocities, the rapes and murders began on October 7th, regular citizens from Gaza participated in them. The, the, there are videos out there of hostages, of Israeli hostages being taken back to Gaza on October 7th and crowds of people cheering in the streets. So based on polling information and based on what we see with our own eyes, we have to come face to face with the reality that we may not want to accept, and that is that we have a population that embraces Hamas, that is supportive of Hamas. Hamas isn't just a rogue terrorist group. This is the the belief system and the worldview of that population, by and large. Well, the Biden administration wants you to have a two-state solution. You know, they, they want you to have, to be friends, you know, with terrorists. What do, what, what do you guys think of that? <laughs> you know, let's first, let's first ask the question, what do they think of that? Meaning, what, is, what does the other side think of that? There was polling conducted by Gallup after October 7th in the Arab population in Judea and Samaria and in the Gaza Strip. After October 7th, 76% of what people call the Palestinians, of the Arabs in, in Judea and Samaria and the Gaza Strip, 76% are opposed to a two-state solution. Let me add that Pew Research did a study of Israelis in September of 2023, just a month before October 7th, and found that 65% of Israelis, 65%, now John, you know anything about political polling, 65% is a landslide. 65% of Israelis, including 59% of Arab Israeli citizens, because you know that there are many Arab Israeli citizens. So 65% of Israelis, including 59% of Arab Israelis, are also opposed to a two-state solution. So the two-state solution concept, which the Biden administration and, and, and Secretary of State Blinken and all the pundits and talking heads on mainstream media love to talk about as the solution, and you hear it from the UN and other, other heads of nation states, they're proposing a solution that neither our enemies nor the Israeli people are in favor of. Now, there's a very important difference between our opposition. 
the reason that the population of Gaza and the Arab populations of Judea and Samaria, the reason our enemies are opposed to a two-state solution is that they want a one-state solution where all the Jews are dead and gone and there's no such thing as Israel. That's their one-state solution idea. Israel's one-state solution idea is an expansion of what we have in the rest of Israel, which is a majority Jewish state that has an Arab minority that lives in peace and freedom. Israel is the only country in the Middle East where the Christian population is, first of all, growing and can worship freely. Think about that. Israel has a Muslim population that worships freely, that has members of the government. There's a a justice on our Supreme Court who's it who's a Muslim, who's an Arab. We have a Jewish state, but with a free and prosperous minority. Our one state solution is Israel, Israel governing the land of Israel in its entirety, with and and anyone who wants to live peacefully here will be allowed to live peacefully here. Look, John, and this is not this is a biblical position. You read the book of Deuteronomy especially, but it's elsewhere in the Bible as well. And over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses warns the people of Israel to love and take care of and be concerned for what's called the ger. The Hebrew word ger in the Bible means stranger, which is, it's always translated that way, which I don't like that translation because that makes it sound like someone's strange. It's a weird, you know, stranger or someone came from somewhere else. Stranger really means someone who's, the word ger, the Hebrew word really means someone who's from a different nation. Meaning there was always an, uh, an awareness. You have it in the Ten Commandments, even in the commandment about Sabbath, where it talks about how everyone has to rest on the Sabbath, including the stranger in your midst, the stranger in your gates. What that means is that even the biblical vision of Israel in the promised land includes members of other nations who live among the people of Israel as a minority, freely respected and prosperous within the Jewish homeland, within the Jewish nation state. That is our vision of the one state. There is no justification for a two-state solution for carving up the land of Israel. It's anti-biblical. The book of Joel, chapter 3, warns the nations of the world that they will be judged at the end times if they divide up the land. And here we are with leaders of nations in the world trying to do exactly what the book of Joel warns about, to divide up the land. So a two-state solution is an anti-biblical position. It makes no sense in terms of the fact that it's a solution that no one on either side of the conflict even wants. So it's the height of arrogance to propose such a thing. And from what we've seen on October 7th, we know that a Palestinian state would endanger Israeli security. So long as this ideology persists, and, and we see from the polling that it's the way these people think, so long as this is the way they think, there's no reason to believe that a Palestinian state would be peaceful. Talking to Rabbi Pesek Waliki, and we are out of time. And uh, just real quickly, how can people connect with you? You're going to be speaking in the United States several places. How do they How do they connect with you? Well, they can connect with me. They can go to Israel365.com. They can find all my writings there. You can email me at Pesach at Israel365.com. And if you're going to be in Cleveland, Tennessee this weekend, I'll be speaking at Westmore Church of God on Sunday evening, this coming Sunday evening. That's the Middle East Report. Thank you for listening. And I want to encourage you, please download a podcast of the show 
And you can get the podcast wherever you get your podcast. We are on all the major podcast platforms out there like Google and Spotify, Podbean, all of those major podcast platforms. Please go and subscribe and follow me. That is how this uh, podcast and this radio show is going to continue to get to more people. So do that. And you can also go to AFR.net, click on the podcast tab, and you can listen to the broadcast there as well. I'm John Riley. Thank you for listening.